Okay, so we'll go through some of these questions. Um, first one is, do you believe that all anxiety can be rationalised, i.e. by an event that's coming up or a past event, something that's happened that's caused the anxiety, and where those feelings are un unresolved? Or do you think that anxiety can occur for no reason at all? Thank you. Um, some great questions. Um, so I don't think anxiety occurs for no reason at all, but I do think sometimes it's really hard to find out what that reason is. Mm. Uh, and I've, I'm not necessarily suggesting we should always try and find out what that reason is, uh, because sometimes it's just too difficult and we may not gain anything by working it out anyway. So we were talking earlier about broken bodies, and actually sometimes it's our hormones, sometimes it's an illness that we've got. Uh, you know, that's not very identifiable. It's not like you can give yourself a blood mm -hmm. test and work out your hormones have changed and therefore you're feeling a bit more anxious. Uh, so sometimes I don't think the, there's going to be a very obvious um, trigger. Sometimes it can be something very deep in our past uh, that we've almost forgotten about that is fueling a lot of our anxiety now. So uh, where we can find the trigger, that's really useful because then we can address it and look at the underlying causes. But let's not be kind of trigger hunters because sometimes it's so hard to find what that trigger is. Mm. I think there'll always be one, but mm. it's just too hard to find it. And so let's not torture ourselves trying to do so. Do you think it's, is it easier to deal with if you, like say, if you find a trigger? As much um, as I think it, it gives you something more tangible to deal with. Yeah. Uh, and I think actually anxiety can often feel so fluffy and you're not quite sure what you're dealing with. The moment you find something tangible, it mm. can be very pleasing to latch hold of that and you think I can constructively do something about that. Yeah. Um, but the reality is life sometimes is, is not that tangible. Uh, yeah. But still, what we've been talking about, turning to God, even if we don't know what the root is, is going to be a good thing to do. Yeah. Uh, next one. How can we rest in the protection of God when bad things still happen? Thank you. Uh, and I think that's a question that comes up time and time again. I think part of it is dispelling any notion in our mind that life is ever going to be without bad things happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think sometimes you think as Christians, we've got to prepare for the times when bad things happen. And I spend a lot of my time as a Christian going, no, no, that's called life. Mm. Uh, actually, bad things happening should be our normality. Now, hopefully not always at the extreme of bad things happening, um, but actually getting ourselves in the mindset is that we're in a broken world with broken bodies, broken experiences. Uh, we should be expecting brokenness on a day-by-day -day basis. Mm. So actually resting in God is a, in, in the bad times as a daily habit rather than a preparation for something special. Mm -hmm. uh, and often I think about it in terms of um, a, an image we use at church quite a lot, our senior pastor talks about us as church as being a lifeboat. Uh, and it's about us being in community, purposefully working together in danger. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is a picture of the human life. And so our job is not to be out of danger, our job is to be encouraging one another to keep on with the mission of God whilst in the bad mm -hmm. stuff that's going on. And so part of it is when we see the bad stuff as normality, it becomes less of an issue. Yeah. Uh, but obviously there are those moments where life is extremely bad. You know, mm. I remember the day I, my parents died just a few days apart from each other. I remember that week vividly. That, that's an e extraordinarily bad stuff. That's not mm. run-of-the-mill mm. bad stuff. Um, I think what it means to, to, to think about God as our refuge in moments like that is to uh, be just talking to him very openly and honestly. And some of that is going to be an expression of trust. Sometimes that is an expression of, what, what are you doing, Lord? You know, why, why, would you, why would you bring that together? 
Um, but it's actually having that open line of communication uh, and, and still engaging with scripture in whatever limited ways we can when life is hard uh, and hearing his words of truth and believing them, mm. however hard that is. Mm. Not giving into those lies that tell us that life should be different, that life would be better if, uh, but actually saying, okay, God, this is the life that you've given me right now and you're equipping me to get through it, so I'm going to trust you in the middle of it. And sometimes it means going to bed with a Bible verse and ask people to pray as well. Mm. We don't have to be heroic the whole time. Sometimes running to God as our refuge uh, means having a nap uh, mm. and, and, and asking someone to pray for us. Yeah. Mm. Um, how do we know when it is the right time to let go and let God and when to step in and take action? Thank you. Um, I think... I would probably want to answer that one by saying it's always the right time to let go and let God and it's always the right time to step in and take action because God is never inactive. He is always working in our hearts and ne God never calls us to passivity. He always calls us to an active life of obedience and holiness uh, and pursuing him. So it's, I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a both and in all circumstances. Now, um, sometimes I use the illustration. Um, I've got a friend who's a, a professional kayaker uh, and I sometimes use the illustration of him sitting on the River Thames. The River Thames is a very tidal Thames, which I, the Avon's tidal as well, isn't it? I think so. Um, and so there's a sense of that, that river has quite a strong flow. So as a kayaker, he can sit in that boat and the, and the tide will just take him somewhere. Mm -hmm. But actually as a kayaker, he wants to sit in that boat and actually work either with or against the tide, mm -hmm. uh, depending on which way he's going. And it's a bit like that in the Christian life. We are in sort of the Christian boat, if you like. The Holy Spirit tide, if you want to use that kind of imagery, doesn't work 100%. But, mm -hmm. you know, God is working in us. He's going to change us. He's going to lead us, even if we do absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. But actually, he, he's calling us to paddle as well. He's yeah. calling us to actively pursue him, to turn to him in repentance and faith. And so there'll be times when we're more tired uh, in which case we'll paddle less, but he'll keep on going. Yeah. There'll be times when um, there's more intensity, maybe when we're getting some counselling or something like that, where we might be paddling a bit harder. Um, but it's always a combination. Uh, he's always at work. He's always calling us to be active as well. Mm -hmm. That's great. If a doctor is recommending CBT, should I take their advice? And how can I do it biblically? Yeah, if a doctor is recommending CBT, then certainly give it some very serious consideration. I mean, I, I think any doctor would say, you know, whether you engage in a therapy or not is your choice. It's not that it's compulsory if a doctor is recommending it. But I would never dismiss something like CBT. There are some wise and godly people. Well, there's some wise people that are probably not godly, not Christians, but uh, some wise people that will be uh, have founded that. Uh, a lot of wise practitioners, some of whom will be Christians, will, will operate that. Uh, and so CBT has a lot of merit to it. Mm -hmm. The thing to remember is it's, it's not based on Jesus. CBT is about changing our thoughts and our behaviour mm -hmm. in a way that is wholeheartedly focused on us. So what I say to people is, you, you, you know, you've got a choice. You, you can engage in CBT. That is your freedom as a human being. If you want to go for it, go for it. You can look around and see if there's a, a biblical counsellor around who will help you with moderating your thoughts and moderating your behaviour through a wholeheartedly biblical approach. But there may or may not be a biblical counsellor around in Bristol that happens to have uh, free spaces, uh, so I can't guarantee that that will be open to you. So what I often say to people, uh, and what we do at my church quite regularly, is we say, yeah, get the CBT, 
But while you're having CBT, meet regularly one-to-one with somebody that can pray with you as well. And so you're intentionally, you're engaging with CBT in, in its form. You're not compromising on that in any way, shape or form. But actually alongside that you're going, but I want to be really careful that I'm not trying this process of change without Jesus. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm going to meet with somebody alongside to pray with them. Mm-hmm. Now that person you're praying with is not going to replicate therapy. They're not going to try and be your therapist. You don't want to have two kinds of therapy going mm-hmm. alongside each other. That would be horribly confusing and counterproductive. Mm-hmm. What it is doing is saying, I'm going to engage in CBT with all the human wisdom that that brings. And I'm going to set aside time to seek Jesus in his face at the same time. Because I know that however brilliant CBT is, Jesus is always going to be better. Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, what's your advice for using talk about anxiety as an evangelistic opportunity? You know, I think I've had more evangelistic opportunities through my anxiety than almost anything else. Uh, and uh, quite recently I was just doing a quite a big training session in London for actually has to do what we call pastoral evangelism, which is uh, talking to people in their tough times um, uh, when they're not Christians, not not when they are. Uh, And and if we just think about it, I mean, how often do your non-Christian friends come up to you and go, you know what, I've always wondered about the atonement. Can you you explain that to me? Um, Or, or, you know, I'd really like you to know more about why Jesus died and rose again. I mean, it occasionally happens, but it really doesn't happen very often, does it? But how often do our non-Christian friends come up to us and go, I am so stressed. (coughs) I don't know what to do about my children. I don't know what to do about my spouse. I don't know what to do about uh, my fears of the future. I don't know what to do about my job. I don't know what to do about my elderly parents. Mm. You know, that kind of conversation happens with my non-Christian friends all the time. And so being able to speak wonderfully wisely about our anxiety and the hope that Jesus brings it is a great opportunity mm. not to manipulate people when they're feeling vulnerable, but to actually say, look, there's real hope. Mm. Um, and I was talking a little earlier, uh, very briefly, about some of the lies that anxiety whispers to us. Oh, I'm alone, it's out of control, uh, I'm, I'm a failure, those kind of things that we think about. And whether you're Christian or not, I think that is common ground. Mm. We can nearly all relate to that common experience of having those thoughts going through our minds. Mm. Uh, and as a Christian, I, I sometimes get alongside people going, look, you know, there are many ways we can handle those negative thoughts. There are many ways that we can sort of talk about our guilt and, and, and the fact that it feels thing out of control. But you know what? And I go into a bit of testimony mode at this point to go, you know, I just find my faith is so helpful because it, it reminds me that even when things feel out of control, they're not. It reminds me that when I feel alone, I'm not. It reminds me that... When I, I, I don't know where to go, I've got someone to lead me. And I don't get all Bible bashing-y and kind of you must repent and believe and come to church or you will perish in eternal damnation and your anxiety is proof of that. <coughs> you don't want to go down these unhelpful, characterised kind of routes. But just saying, look, I found hope in the middle of my anxiety. It hasn't made it all instantly go away. Mm. We don't want to overpromise what God will do. Yeah. Uh, but just saying, look, in the middle of my anxiety, I found following Jesus... Uh, just an incredibly transformational process Mm. Uh, and if you ever want to know more about that you know I'd be happy to tell you Uh, can I you know other words like can I pray for you Mm -hmm. Uh, or it can be things like um, if you're taking a brick out of your wall you can even say well do you want to do this alongside me because a lot of the taking off and putting on and having your mind transformed actually works 
uh, whether you're a Christian or not. Mm-hmm. Um, not all of it. You've got to be careful. You can't overpromise someone that they're a child of God when they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, that process of leaving behind certain ways of being and pursuing other ways of being by having our minds transformed and remembering mm-hmm. that we are precious and we are loved, uh, that's something that actually a lot of non-Christians are up for. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how do you encourage a Christian who is feeling anxious and low they are reading the Bible, praying, talking with their friends, but nothing seems to change. I think it's, it's important to remember that as Christians, there are moments when nothing seems to change. Mm-hmm. You know, life as a Christian is, is a life of change, but that change isn't linear. We're not always changing at the same amount uh, all the time. It's a, a life of kind of growth and then a bit of plateau and then messing up and then growth and a bit of plateau and a messing up. And those plateau times are not, a sign that anything's wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just a normal part of that growth process. You know, those of you who've got children will know, you know, they're not growing in a, a millimetre a day. There, there are spurts and then mm-hmm. there are times when they, they're the same and there's another spurt. And we're a bit like that in the Christian life. So don't panic if nothing is changing for a while. That is perfectly normal. Often that's God's kindness in giving us a little bit of rest from that growth process, mm-hmm. which would actually would be a bit too exhausting if we were going the same pace uh, the whole time. Uh, but alongside that, also remember that that doesn't mean that God is being inactive and actually there might be some change going on. It's just under the surface. Mm. They might be learning to rest. I, I, I am an activist. I am an off-the-scale activist. I can easily travel a thousand miles in a week doing talks around the country. Sitting still is not my gifting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes it is when I am doing less and actually to the <coughs> outward eye I'm doing nothing <coughs> that actually I'm growing most because that's the time when I'm resting in mm. God uh, and actually just quietly trusting him rather than being hyperactive all over the place. Mm-hmm. So inactivity doesn't, or sort of a lack of obvious growth doesn't actually mean there's no growth going on under the surface. Mm-hmm. But if there's no growth or no obvious growth for years and years and years, that's a little bit of a kind of a red flag. Now it might be that there's something medical going on underneath Uh, that no amount of Bible reading or prayer is actually going to do anything about. There actually needs to be some medication in there, uh, or the medication needs to be tweaked. Um, uh, And so it's always worth liaising with medical professionals. Or what I've often found in counselling, when we see no growth, it's because people are trying to take the whole wall down at the same time, Mm -hmm. rather than taking a brick out of the wall. They're trying to... They're trying to do an impossible task and then suddenly get inert in the face of the enormity of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And often I find if we help people break things down into really bite-sized pieces, Mm -hmm. uh, your aim is not to stop being depressed this week. Your aim is not to stop being anxious this week. Your aim is not to stop uh, comfort eating this week. Your aim is simply to remember that God loves you Mm -hmm. or that God is sovereign. Actually, if we break it down into much smaller baby steps then actually we tend to see growth much more. Yeah, that's very helpful. How would you counsel someone who wants to let go of or forget past mistakes and regrets but does not know the mechanism of how to do it? Yeah, Um, and there could be two reasons for that. That's that's a really complex one, actually. Um, We could spend the rest of the day talking about that. We won't, I promise. I'll keep it short. Um, it, It could be that um, they just haven't um, quite grasped how to do repentance and, and accept grace. Mm-hmm. And actually as churches, I mean, I'm, I'm not casting any aspersions on, on Grace Church, but as churches generally, as I go around 
uh, the country, people will talk a lot about repentance, but they don't actually spend much time showing each other what repentance looks mm. like. I mean, when was the last time that you repented in a way that other people could observe? Mm. Um, it's not something we tend to do very often. Uh, and so I try now at church to be a bit more off- open and obvious with my repentance. And that might involve going through something like Psalm 51, which will mean articulating what I've done wrong, articulating that I've hurt other people, but that my primary offence was against God. This is just kind of going through the Psalm 51 kind of um, uh, structure. But then going, affirming and asserting that actually uh, God is gracious and kind and the forgiveness is real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then getting to the point of going, well, actually, therefore, I can be sure that having said sorry, that God is going to wash me, has washed me whiter than snow. Mm-hmm. And therefore, every time that that thought that I'm not clean comes into my head, I'm going to mm-hmm. address that and turn that around and go, no, no, I am clean and I'm praising God for the cleanliness that mm-hmm. he's given me. Uh, and actually walking someone through that structure can be really helpful. But often people get stuck because they don't believe that God could really forgive them. Mm-hmm. And there are two reasons for that. Well, there's probably more than two, but there are two big reasons for that. One is that they haven't seen how big God is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one is that there's a reason for them holding on to that guilt. Sometimes it's they just can't believe God is that loving or that kind. And so just spending some time going, look, no, he really does love you that much. He really is that big. The cross really was that effective. Mm-hmm. Just spending time on that theological stuff can be really helpful. But for some people, there's this weird tension. They want to be free of the guilt, but actually they also want to hold on to the guilt as well. Um, Because that guilt in some way defines them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And actually, they are so used to being that guilty person that they can't imagine their identity outside of that guilt. Now, as I said, I've come from addictions background, uh, and what we often do a lot when we're trying to break free of an addiction is we just have to imagine what it's like to be free from that addiction, because that addiction is so overwhelming that I I can't actually imagine what life would be like. What would breakfast look like if I hadn't had a drink before? What would uh, going to bed look like if I wasn't slightly hammered? You know, what would how would I get through the day without a chemical hit? You can be so embroiled in the tough stuff of your life that you can't even begin to imagine what living life free of that would be. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the first steps towards breaking free of addiction is it to in, imagine and actually really be able to grasp what life would be like without that. And some people have that struggle with guilt. It's not that they enjoy the guilt, they're not some kind of masochists that are holding onto it, for, but they genuinely can't imagine what it's like to be free. They genuinely can't imagine what it would be like to be able to pray without feeling guilty, to look in the mirror without feeling horrified. And so some of it is just casting that imagination, going, this is the life that God's calling you to. Let's dream that dream. And then let's just work on the fact that it's a reality too. It's a really complex one though. So if there's a specific something in someone's mind, do come and chat to me afterwards um, because I can only give generalisations from the front. Uh, any thoughts for when it feels like you're building your brick wall rather than dismantling it? Oh, every day. Yeah. <laughs> that is yeah. just such a common experience, isn't it? You know, yeah. I'm going to honour the Lord and here I am just doing the complete opposite uh, every single uh, moment. 
Um, I, I think part of it is accept that that is the reality of the form yeah. of thought. We are a mixture of the old self and the new self. Mm-hmm. Um, and that old self still tugs at us so much uh, that it's not weird that we still get drawn back to that old self. Mm. Uh, so let's not be surprised when we build our brick walls. Mm. Uh, let's not despair when we build our brick walls. Let's mm. just kind of go, this is what humanity is like. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but let's not, all, let's not settle for building our brick walls. Mm. Because actually, when we take a step back, we can see that we're just hurting ourselves. Uh, we're actually, in, in some ways, hurting the people around us as well, because mm. you know we want to be walking together towards Jesus, but actually, by building our brick walls, we're, we're, we're doing a U-turn and going the other way, which doesn't help our sisters in Christ. So I think sometimes it's, you sit there and you kind of go, okay, let, let me just think, what bricks am I putting in my brick wall right now? What, why, am, why am I choosing to do that? Am I scared of God? You know, think about the prodigal son. You know the story, you know, the son that said to his dad, wish you were dead, give me your cash. Mm-hmm. Dad very kindly went, yes, okay, here's your cash. Went away, squandered it, ended up sitting in a pigsty. Um, and, and he can be that's a bit like building a wall there was a moment where he was just sitting in the pigsty mm. there was a moment where he was just going life is a mess this is horrible and I'm not doing anything about it but what he had to remember and what we need to remember is actually life is better when we go back to our father mm. there has to be that moment where we consciously say okay I'm getting up out of the pigsty and I'm going home uh, and that doesn't mean we won't end up back in the pigsty again at some point next week, next month, or next year. There is that toing and froing with our old self and our new self. But the more we can say, let's just keep going, it's going to be all right, God wants me back, then the more we can keep going. I remember, I, as I said, I have an accountability group. Uh, I have a number of accountability groups, actually. Uh, and I remember, I, I, I won't give you the details, but I messed up on something. Uh, and one of my pastors and his wife just texted back and went, okay, Helen, let's repent. And then we go again, safe in the knowledge that you are loved just as much now as you were the first day you came to Christ. Mm-hmm. And so every time we mess up, we don't despair. We simply let other people in, come back to God in repentance and kind of go, yeah, I've put 16 bricks in my brick wall this week, but actually tomorrow's a new day, mm. new morning, new mercies. Mm. I'm going to take one of those bricks out. And the more we can encourage each other to do that, the more we will. And there'll be days of growth and days of slump. Mm. But we don't give up. That's the key thing about the Christian life. We don't give up. How many more? Probably one, maybe two, depending on how long they are. How can I overcome my desire to run away from God every time anxiety comes? I'm anxious most of the time, and my relationship with God is suffering so much. Thank you, and thank you for that, that deeply personal uh, question. I think we often run... I mean, obviously, I, I might be getting this wrong because I don't know who you are. So, again, do please come and chat to me afterwards if you want to give me more information, and I can be a bit more specific. Uh, but often, we run away from God in our anxiety uh, because that rooted stuff that we were talking about earlier has got scrambled in our minds. Mm-hmm. We, we imagine God as someone that might not want us. Or we imagine God as someone that might be irritated with us. Or we imagine God as someone that can't cope with us or wouldn't want to do anything about our struggles. Or we imagine God as someone that is just lobbing bad stuff at us. And we wouldn't necessarily articulate that in a Bible study because we go to a church where we're well taught. Mm -hmm. But functionally, that's how we're relating to him, like a distant uh, 
kind of ruler rather than an intimate father. And it might be that we've had some bad experience in our life with a, a, a man in authority like a dad and we're projecting some of that stuff onto God. Mm. You know, if we've had a dad that was absent or distant or cruel, then we can assume that God's going to be absent or distant and cruel. Mm. And no one's going to want to come to an absent, distant or cruel God. Mm. I mean, why would you want to? So it might be that, you know, we're thinking about God in a, in a way that just isn't right. Or it, it might be that we're thinking about ourselves in a way that just isn't right. That we're thinking about ourselves as so worthless that why would God want us? Or, or so powerless that we could never have the energy to turn to God. Or so useless that there's no point because we'll never grow anyway. And so it, it's entirely likely from you know, the little information I've got that some of those rooting things are going to be really helpful. Because mm-hmm. when we see ourselves as valuable and full of potential in the hands of the living God, and we see God as a loving father who just adores to have us run to him in all our mess. You know, it's like, you know those toddlers that fall over and scrape their knee, and there's blood, and there's tears, and you, you can always tell when there's a good relationship between that toddler and their dad, because they get up, there's that moment of silence, there's that hideous wailing that breaks the sound barrier, and then there's just a full pelt with arms up towards daddy or mummy, or whoever it is. Now, if your child doesn't do that, don't panic. It doesn't mean something's going wrong. <laughs> uh, but, but it is a beautiful picture uh, of how, how parenting a, a can be. Um, and that's what God wants from us. And, and when we get it, that actually we can be as messy as messy it can be, God still wants us to run to him. When we get that right, then it's easier to run to him. Of course, it might just be that you're really knackered and tired, uh, uh, and therefore turning to anyone or anything is really hard. And that's where it can actually be really useful to have a friend saying, look, you know what, I'm going to ring you up. I did that with a a friend uh, who was suffering with anxiety for quite some time. She couldn't pray uh, by herself, so every Monday morning I phoned her up, uh, and we just read one verse of scripture together uh, and said one very short prayer each. Um, it's a wonderful way we can serve each other kick starts that process of turning to God and like most things in life the more we do it the easier it becomes yeah. so how uh, do you help someone struggling with anxiety in some form when they won't acknowledge it or only part of it and refuse to seek help and they are a believer oh that's so hard isn't it Sometimes you just see someone so broken uh, and, and your heart melts for them uh, and you want to, you want to, um, you want to do something. Uh, the first port of call is always prayer. Uh, praying for somebody is a transformational, it's a loving thing to do. Uh, and in the hands of the living God, uh, things can change. Uh, secondly, um, use testimony. Uh, help them know sometimes people will think they're the only one that's struggling sometimes people think that you know there isn't any hope so actually bringing in real life stories of how god has changed you when you've been in a mess um can actually give them some sort of hope uh that that change is possible uh it, it might be that you'll need at some stage to sit down and have a tough conversation uh, you know speaking the truth in love is not always comfortable uh but sometimes it's necessary you don't have to be harsh or cruel uh, but sometimes sitting down and going, look, can I just be honest with you? I love you to bits and I am really worried. 
uh, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm worried that actually you're in this tough situation uh, and, and at the moment you're not getting the help you need and I'd love to be part of that process of you deciding what help to get. Now, you don't want to take over their lives, you don't want to become their puppet master, they're still people with agency of their own mind. But sometimes just saying to someone, you look like you're heading over a cliff and I just can't stand by and let you go over. I want to hold you back. Mm. Sometimes a loving and gentle conversation like that will be necessary. Sometimes getting somebody else to have that conversation. If that person's in your family, the chances are you may well not be the right person to have that conversation mm. with them. Mm. You're too close. Mm. Sometimes it's getting somebody else to have that conversation. Uh, but sometimes, sadly, we do just have to sit and wait for someone to be ready. Um, if it's a very serious situation, it might end up being a safeguarding thing. Uh, but most of the time... We sit and we wait and we sit alongside somebody. I've got a friend at the moment who's struggling massively with anxiety. Uh, he's same-sex attracted. Uh, he's really struggling. He is a Christian and he's trying to be pure, but he's finding it so hard uh, to, to walk that line. Uh, and he just wants to walk away from God. And he's had lots of well-meaning people having conversations with him about, oh, don't be anxious, oh, it's worth it. Lots of trite comments have come out. Um, uh, and in the end, I, I didn't know what to do. And it ended up, by God's grace, being the most helpful thing I could have said, uh, which wasn't profound, it wasn't wise, it wasn't uh, taking him to a new place. It was, I just said to him, can we just spend the day together? I just want to sit down in the mud with you. Mm. And we just sat and gave him a hug. Mm. And he cried and I cried. And we didn't try anything more constructive than that that day. Mm. It was just up, this hurts and I'm here with you. Mm. And a little later on, we were able to build from that. I wasn't trying to change him. I was just trying to be with him. Mm. And that gave me the relational capital, if you like, mm. to then have some tougher conversations further down the street.